are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. All right, the preaching passage for today is Romans 10, 5 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you, sorry, (laughs) I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish foolish nation, nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, I, I, hope, um, I hope we know just how, uh, how much of a gift of God's grace it is just for Cody and the men and women that serve us each week through song uh, to have them here uh, Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, just being here, I've known Cody for a long time, but I mean, Cody is a pastor, and that comes through in how he leads us. I'm so grateful for him. I'm so grateful for everybody that gives of their time and their energy to serve the body through their talents and their skills that I do not have. Um, and so I'm just super thankful for them. So I hope you let them know, the men and women who serve us through song, just how much you appreciate them and how much the Lord has used them in your own life. That's, I hope I hope he has. So uh, three weeks left in our, uh, our reset series. So this week, two more after this week, uh, before we move into getting into 1 Peter, the first week of August, uh, August the 7th. And so I'm super excited about that. Um, I encourage you ahead of time, if you want to go ahead and be reading in 1 Peter, um, we're going to be in 1 Peter from August the 7th all the, way, all the way to Advent. So we're going to be in it for a long time. So make yourself comfortable in 1 Peter. Get to know 1 Peter. Um, yeah, Read along with me as, as we go through it together. Um, but uh, today is going to be the first of three more weeks in our Reset Sermon Series. So I'm super excited about finishing this up and moving into First Peter. How beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news. That's one of our verses here in the text for this morning. It's a quote from Isaiah 52.7, where in the context of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah who will come and bring good news, a deliverer who would, quote, publish peace, who would bring good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And there's nothing like good news, right? There's nothing like good news. Uh, You may or may not know the name uh, Gordon Granger. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the decree that freed all slaves from the Confederate states where the country was divided due to the Civil War. Obviously, many southern states uh, ignored this proclamation and continued to practice slavery. And the state of Texas, due to just the lack of major fighting in Texas at that point in the Civil War, a lack of union presence and pressure there, uh, one of these, they were one of these states that continued to practice slavery. In fact, many Southerners, Southern enslavers, moved to Texas because of these reasons, to be able to more fully practice slavery, keep people enslaved. But two months after the war ended in 1865, on June 19, 1865, General Gordon Granger, along with a number of Union troops, they plotted into Galveston, Texas, and read General Orders Number 3, which said this, and I quote, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free, end quote. 250,000 men and women in Texas, boys and girls, they were now liberated from a life of bondage and slavery and given the possibility of enjoying a new life. And June 19th, 1865, or Juneteenth, as we know it today, became a, a day of significance and remembrance in the history of our country. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, there's nothing like good news. There's nothing like good news. You know, Paul throughout Romans has been declaring good news. The letter to the Romans is one continual thought. It's one continual argument from start to finish. Paul, for the first 11 chapters, is unpacking the mystery and the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul doesn't get to one command in the book of Romans until chapter 12. It's his first command in the entire book of Romans where he says, therefore, so in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, therefore, offer your bodies by the mercies of God as a living sacrifice. It's his first command. And within those 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of unpacking the gospel, chapters 9 through 11 in particular, deal with the question of Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the effectiveness of God's promises towards them. And Paul is trying to reconcile these two seemingly conflicting things, you know, trying to answer the questions, are all the promises of Israel still true? Has God gone back on his word to Abraham? How do you reconcile Israel's unbelief and the words of God to them that they will be his treasured possession forever? Has God rejected them? Paul spends three chapters trying to reconcile these big, massive truths. And right in the middle of that conversation, so if you have concentric circles here, so you have the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, Romans 9 through 11, and then the smallest circle here where we're at for today is Romans chapter 10. All right, Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul's discussing here the righteousness of God, right standing with God, how men and women are saved, how they are made right with God particularly within the discussion of Israel's righteousness and how they, for the most part, sought to achieve 
righteousness, right standing with God, the wrong way. And so for the first four verses here in Romans 10, which we didn't, really, we didn't read this morning, but Paul, being an Israelite himself, he expresses his yearning that his people be saved, believe, be believers, believers in Christ. They're zealous in what they believe, but Paul says that their passion, their zeal is not rooted in the truth. Rather, they've sought to establish their own righteousness by insufficient means. Namely, by trying to keep the law of God. To be right with God. And Paul there in verse 4 of chapter 10, if you're looking at it, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's setting the stage here for a discussion on two attempts towards right standing with God and setting those attempts in contrast to one another. And the text can really be divided up into two main sections. So verses 5 through 21 can be divided up into two sections. The first section, verses 5 through 10, if you're a note taker, you have the content of evangelism. The content of evangelism, because that's important. If you're going to share the gospel, you need to know what you're sharing, what's important. And then in verses 11 through 21, you have the methods of evangelism. Content and methods. All right, that's how we're going to split it up this morning. Content and methods. So let's start with the content of evangelism. And let's look at Paul's discussion here, beginning in verse 5. All right, so let's reread verses 5 through 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not stay in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So thinking through, like in the context of, of this reset sermon series and our topic for today, which is on evangelism, getting back to the basics of evangelism, the first piece of content that Paul begins to unpack here, laying the groundwork, and re- with regards to our quest for righteousness, for right standing with God, is that right standing before God is based on our faith, not our works. It's based on our faith, not our works. Verse 5 actually is a quote from Leviticus 18.5, the law of God, where the Lord tells Moses, uh, tells Israel through Moses, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It's the same conversation Jesus has with a lawyer before telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan, which he talked about briefly last week. This lawyer in Luke 10, he comes to Jesus and he asks the question, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. All right, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him what he thinks. Hey, what do you think you should do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer responds, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Quotes the two greatest commandments in the law. And Jesus says, yep, you do those things and you'll live. All right? And I, I read that as like a tongue-in-cheek. Like, if you can do that, you're going to find life. Good luck with that. The lawyer has some confidence that he can do this, but then Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan and says, you really don't love your neighbor. You don't know who your neighbor is. And that's the point here. In Paul's discussion about law and righteousness, Paul is not saying the law is bad or evil or from the enemy. 
he actually says that obedience to the law produces life. If you obey the law, you will find life and righteousness. That's verse 5. The only problem with obeying the law is that you can't do it. None of us can do what the law requires to a T. None of us can obey the law in its fullest extent. Even if our actions are right, oftentimes our hearts are wrong. So even if externally we're doing the right thing, internally we could be a mess. Nobody can obey the law. We can't do it. It's not that the law can't produce life. It can. It's that we are disobedient people and can't keep the law and find life in it. So Paul continues and he unpacks for us the way to life. It's not adherence to the law. That brings death, for none of us can do it. But it's faith in Christ as our substitute. That's what he's getting at next here, as our substitute. So the second piece of content is Jesus was our substitute. If righteousness can't be attained on our own, and it's by faith, not works, then we need another one, another. We need him to keep the law. We need to find righteousness in another. We need a substitute. So you have these weird verses here in verses 6 and 7. These are kind of weird. But both of these statements are designed to alleviate the fear we may have of never being righteous before God. We may fret over what we can do to be right and right standing with God, but Paul is reassuring us that those fears are ungrounded. And he does it in two ways. Two ways. First, in verse 6, he's stating that Jesus was our substitute. We have no reason to fear, for in the incarnation, Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. When Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and took on flesh, he lived the perfect life we could not live as our substitute. We find only death due to our own disobedience and sin in the law. So the righteousness based on faith, verse 6, does not say, let me go up to the heavens and bring someone down that has done it before and let him do it. That's not our response. That's not the righteousness by faith that is required here. But someone in the heavens has already come down and done it for us. Someone has already descended from the heavenly places, Jesus Christ himself, and been our substitute in what we could not do, namely keeping the law. In his flesh, Christ kept the law as our substitute. And as our representative, as our covenant head, true faith declares that my righteousness is given to me. It's imputed to me, if you want to use that word. It's not something I can earn. It's something that has been gifted to me through faith in the person of Christ. True faith doesn't look for another outside of Christ in whom to attain righteousness. It doesn't look to ourselves outside of Christ to attain our own righteousness. We have the righteousness of the incarnate Christ. That's verse 6. Verse 7, on the other side of the same coin, verse 7 tells us that Jesus as our substitute in the crucifixion died the death we were condemned to die. He was our substitute in life, yet he was our substitute in death as well. We shouldn't look to the heavens for another to come down and fulfill righteousness for us that's been done, nor should we look to the grave as if the source of our righteousness is still in the grave. He's not in the abyss anymore, but he has been resurrected. He has overcome the grave. 
The place that you and I belong, the cross, the place where criminals were hung, we deserve to be there, but Christ and His mercy and His kindness and His grace towards us took our place on the cross and bore the wrath of the Father for our sin upon Himself. He died. He was buried. He rose again. We don't look for salvation in a dead Messiah. Jesus is no longer in the abyss. He's no longer in the grave. If He were in the grave as Paul goes on to talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, then we are still dead in our sins. A.K.A. we're still unrighteous before God. We still need someone to come and fulfill all righteousness because we can't do it. Jesus is dead. He can't do it, but He's not dead. He's alive. Christ not only lived the life we couldn't live, freeing us from the burden of keeping the law for our righteousness, but He also rose from the dead. He is alive demonstrating to us that God approved of his sacrifice, that he approved of his life and his righteousness in granting him newness of life. And as his body, if he is our head and we are the body, our righteousness and newness of life, our right standing before God, our justification, to use the good theological word, is found in Christ. In his finished work in living and in his finished work in dying. It's done. The end. Righteousness is solely found in Him. Salvation has come and liberated us from the bondage of sin and death. How beautiful are the feet of Christ who's brought us good news. And Paul sums it up here in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Paul's kind of summing it up. And he's saying, keeping the law is impossible. It's unattainable. It feels distant. But belief in the gospel is attainable. It's near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's within our reach, not because of us, but because Christ has come near to us. He's come near to us. Christ has come near to us in the incarnation. He's come near to us in the resurrection. And he sends his spirit to us to be with us, among us, and the hope of righteousness and resurrection come near us through the Holy Spirit. So in contrasting these, uh, these two quests for righteousness, righteousness by the law, which is what Israel pursued and failed to attain it, and righteousness that comes by faith and the finished work of Christ, these two contrasting ideas of where righteousness is found, in contrasting these two quests, Paul continues to give us content to the message we proclaim. Verses 9 and 10, he gives two components of true faith that demonstrate the simplicity and the nearness of this faith. That it isn't a striving after something we'll never attain, but it's as simple as confession and belief. So verses 9 and 10, maybe some verses really familiar to you. Let's read it again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These verses can be summed up by saying true faith is evidenced by right doctrine married with right behavior. Right doctrine married with right behavior. Right doctrine being the source of faith. You believe that Christ is who he said he was. Believe that he is enough for your salvation. Married with right living. Right living doesn't justify you, but it is the evidence of right faith, of right belief. Again, as Paul's comparing these quests for righteousness, right doctrine and right behavior, 
being married together, they stand in contrast to the quest of the Jews from verses 1 through 4. Remember, they were, they were zealous, right? They were, their actions and behavior being manifested were, were very passionate, but they were zealous for the wrong things because their doctrine was off. They were living according to ignorance, right? So you can't separate how you live with what you believe. How you live is a byproduct of what you believe. You know, trace any actions back, good or bad, in your life. Trace any action back, good or bad, or even neutral. And you'll find that behind those actions is some form of doctrine or belief. My doctrine about health, my belief about my health, what is good or bad for my body leads to behaviors around diet and exercise. My doctrine around how to raise my children, my belief around how to raise my kids leads to behaviors around what I let them watch or how I discipline them or how I communicate my love and care for them. Doctrine around anything leads you to act and wrong doctrine or right doctrine leads to wrong behavior or right behavior. In this marriage of, of doctrine and behavior in verses 9 and 10, Paul says first, he says first, doctrine matters. It matters. But many today, we try to downplay doctrine in churches and in our culture. You know, some churches, maybe you're familiar with these churches, um, they try to stay away from doctrine. You know, in a quest to be more inclusive or not get tripped up on trivial matters. And listen, I hear that. I respect that to a certain degree. I don't think we should ever get hung up on secondary and tertiary matters where it causes division in the body. Some churches even go as far to adopt the slogan, you know, we have no creed but Christ. Maybe you've seen that. We have no creed. What's your statement of faith? We have no creed but Christ. But even that's a statement that needs doctrine, right? Who's Christ? What has he done? What did he do? What, how do we believe in him? So that statement in and of itself is a statement of doctrine. It's doctrinal belief. But our religious entities aren't the only ones that live by doctrine and creeds. You know, oftentimes, Christians, we get knocked for our exclusiveness, right? You're too exclusive. You need to be more inclusive. I hear that a lot. So the culture responds and attempts to be as inclusive as possible, right? We'll include anyone. And they attempt to swing to the other end of the pendulum, the spectrum, by eliminating any kind of exclusionary clauses to anything. I'm going to throw up a sign. Maybe you've seen this sign in your neighbor's yards before. It says, we believe black lives matter, no humans illegal, love is love, women's rights are human's rights, science is real, water's life, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I see this sign all the time. Maybe you do too. And I get it, all right? I, I get this sign. It is a desire to treat human beings as image bearers of God. They may not articulate it like that, but that's exactly what this sign is for, right? But at the same time, it's a failed attempt at being inclusive and accepting of all people regardless of differences. Because this is a creed. This is a creed that is undergirded by doctrine. And any statement that begins with we believe is a creed. You know, the word belief in our English language, it's from the Latin credo, literally, which means creed. And creed is undergirded by doctrine. Creed requires doctrine, and doctrine, by definition, is exclusive. This is what we believe, and if you don't believe this, you are outside of us. Doctrine is exclusive, by definition. 
Now, each one of these statements is loaded. We're not going to go through all these statements. It's another. If you want to go through these statements with me, let's talk about them. Um, I'd love to. We can do that another time. But in my opinion, this is a sign, ultimately, of invitation. You see this sign in your neighbor's yards? You go, man, I would love to talk about doctrine with you. I'd love to talk about your beliefs with you. You believe these things. Let's talk about those things. Let's dialogue with these things. I think about even the quote last week of Rosaria Butterfield, that strong relationships precede strong conversations, right? So if you don't have a strong relationship, I don't advise going to your neighbor and going, hey, let's talk about these things. But this is a statement of belief. We believe, and all beliefs are undergirded with doctrine. Doctrine matters for everybody, not just Christians. And doctrine by nature is exclusive. Because doctrine eliminates people outside of your core beliefs. So in seeking to attain righteousness by faith as human beings, what we believe, our doctrine eternally matters. It matters. Doctrine matters for every single person in this world, and it matters for us. And Paul tells us here the centerpiece of our doctrine, right here in verse 9, it's the resurrection. He's already mentioned earlier the importance of the resurrection. He reiterated it here. If you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. Verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul expands this thought a bit. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These are things of first importance as believers. Crucifixion. And the resurrection. This is our doctrine. The crucifixion of Christ for sin. So resurrection is to deny those things. Is to deny Christianity. It's to deny the faith. Failure to believe these things is of eternal importance. But not only does doctrine matter, because it does. Go on our website right now. You can see what we believe about certain things. Doctrine matters. But secondly, Paul also says that Jesus must rule over our life. Jesus is Lord. He is ruler. He is commander. Jesus must be the one directing and dictating how we live. If you say you are a believer in Christ, a Christ follower, if you say you believe in the crucifixion and resurrection, yet your life looks nothing like a life following the commands of God, I would challenge you, venture to say you actually don't believe your doctrine because your life would reflect your belief. Even when we sin, all of our sin is rooted in unbelief. Unbelief in what we claim to believe. This is the bedrock of Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, doubting the word and promises of God that he had expressed to them in Genesis chapter 2. When we sin, if we traced our actions back to the root, we would find some place of unbelief or doubt that God could come through for us in those areas we sought satisfaction in other places. All sin is an unbelief. Doctrine and behavior go hand in hand. What we say we believe should line up with our behavior and vice versa. Doctrine is the source of faith. Behavior is the expression of faith. And Paul's saying, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is your guide. He is your commander. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Those two things go hand in hand. Belief in the gospel leads to actions in the gospel. Unbelief in the gospel leads to actions outside of the gospel. But praise God, the gospel's enough, even when we mess up. So then Paul moves on from the content of evangelism. That's the first section here. It's a general methods around evangelism. Sharing the gospel. How do we do that? How do we do that? I'm not getting into specifics here. I think uh, 
<laughs> I think a lot of methods of evangelism are very militaristic um, and project-driven, seeing people as projects. We're not getting into that today. Um, it's not my notes. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I did anyway. Um, his main point, Paul's main point here is if the gospel is true, it must be proclaimed in all the world. That if it is true, if the premise is true, if everything Christ did and said are true, if he is at the right hand of the Father right now reigning in power, if the resurrection happened, if those things are true, that is a message worth proclaiming to all people. All people. And the first point of method here is that the gospel is to be extended to all people. Just said that. Look at verses 11 through 13. The gospel is extended to all people. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him, in Christ, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. No exceptions. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who put their lives in the hands of Christ will never be let down. The Lord will deliver everything you need. Now this is a quote here uh, in these verses. Paul using the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, Joel 2.32 in particular, is a text about the day of the Lord. Right? That's a phrase that's used all throughout the scriptures. The day of the Lord. It's this cataclysmic final day of salvation for some and judgment for others. And there have been many small days of the Lord throughout history. There's one final day of the Lord coming. The end of time when Christ comes. Ushers up His people to salvation, full and finally salvation. And then people that reject Christ, they stand before Him in judgment. That's the day of the Lord. And Paul's saying this final day of the Lord is coming and the gospel needs to be proclaimed to everyone because those who don't believe it, Jew or Gentile, they are standing in judgment before God and they need to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's also with this a sense of urgency undergirding Paul's declaration that the gospel be made known to everyone. Everyone needs saving. Everyone. Therefore, everyone needs Christ. I mean, do we, do I, do us, do we think about that as we interact on a daily basis with our families and with our neighbors and with our coworkers? That that the end is coming, that Christ is coming, or we are dying. And when we wake up tomorrow morning, by God's grace, if He allows us to wake up tomorrow morning, we are one day closer to one of those two realities. How often does that occur to us that those without Christ, those who live without Christ, die without Christ? That there's no second chance after death, that this is it. And we met, we're not guaranteed the rest of this day. Do we live with that sense of urgency that the gospel needs to be proclaimed to all people starting in our homes, starting in our neighborhoods, starting in our cities and our workplaces? Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe these things? Do we have an urgency because of our belief? Or do we ignore the commands to share the gospel? Second component of method, second the gospel is primarily proclaimed through God's people. The gospel is primarily proclaimed through God's people. Verses 14 and 15. Paul poses a bunch of questions here. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God is a God of means. 
Yeah, he can do supernatural things, and he does supernatural things all the time, but he's also a God of means. You pray for supernatural healing from illness, sometimes God uses the means of doctors and medicine to bring that about. You know, you pray up for protection for your family on road trips, oftentimes God uses the means of seatbelts and safe drivers to get you to do that. You pray for financial deliverance from unexpected debt or job loss and these factors, oftentimes God uses the means of the body of Christ to provide for you in those times of need. The gospel is intended to be proclaimed in all the nations of the world. God uses the means of his people to take the message of salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you are bringing good news, church. You're bringing good news. For those who are truly aware of the futility of appeasing God's wrath by their own means, for those that are truly desperate for some good news, for some way of deliverance, out of this broken world that we live in, for those that have known nothing their entire life but bondage to sin and death, you are bringing good news of hope, of deliverance, of freedom to a people in desperate need of good news. They need good news, and you've got the greatest news ever. We have the greatest news in the history of the universe, and people need to hear it not just in Birmingham, but in the nations as well. Third, the Gospels believe through hearing it communicated. The Gospels believe through hearing it communicated. Verses 16 and 17. But they've not all, all obeyed the Gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, you probably heard the quote, uh, and I don't even know if he really said it, uh, he's attributed, the quote's attributed to him, but I don't, I don't know. Um, St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, preach the gospel of necessary used words. Probably didn't say it, that's okay. Um, anyway, it's a quote, preach the gospel of necessary used words. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you're familiar with it. And I first heard that quote in college, and I was super gung-ho about that quote, uh, and I get the sentiment. I mean, I get it, like, completely. It's what we talked about before, doctrine and behavior go hand in hand, right? Your doctrine influences your behavior. Your behavior is influenced by your doctrine, all those things. If I'm living my life in accordance with the scriptures, then those who need Christ are going to notice something different about me and ask me about it. They'll, have, they'll want what I have. When I first heard that quote, though, instead of thinking that way, I liked it less for the idea of aligning doctrine and behavior and more for the fact that I felt I had a backup to not share the gospel, <laughs> to not have to be rejected you know, or turned away or seen as weird. Now I'll preach the gospel with my life and, and words won't be necessary. I'll just preach the gospel. I'll live a good life. I'll preach the gospel with my life. That was my thinking. But here's the deal. Paul just said true faith comes about through hearing, not seeing. You hear it. Listening is the primary way the gospel is proclaimed and believed. Not primarily watching someone live in accordance to it. Now, words are necessary. Words are the means, as Paul says here. I'm not saying your life doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. But faith comes by hearing. And not just hearing anything, but hearing the word of Christ. So let's be more verbal and vocal in talking about the gospel with other people. Let's be more verbal and vocal in singing the gospel here among us, proclaiming the gospel. Because faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Then last, lastly, through the gospel, God's patience and persistence are ever-present. 
through the gospel, God's patience and persistence are ever-present. Verses 18 through 21. But I ask, have they not heard, speaking of the Israelites, the Jewish people? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul takes it back to Israel, which will propel him forward into chapter 11, which we're not going to preach on, talk about. He's discussing their future in chapter 11. And he makes the argument that although persistent in their rejection, the Lord was always pursuing them. He's holding his hands out. Holding his hands out to an obstinate and disobedient people. The Lord is patient. He's ever pursuing He's coming after us. And the same is true for Gentiles, not just Jewish people, Gentiles as well. The desire for the Lord is that all men and women turn to him for salvation. He is patient, church. He is patient. He's patient. But one day his patience will run out. If you're here and not a believer in Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you are not a Christ follower, please do not wait any longer. Today is the day of salvation. Today. That might have massive implications for your life. I don't know. But today's the day. Don't put it off any longer. Christ could return today or you could die today. Either way. Either way. Don't wait until you may or may not wake up tomorrow morning. Don't wait. Today's the day of salvation. We're one day closer, one day closer than we were yesterday. So don't spurn his invitation any longer. He's holding his arms out for you. And his arm is not too short to save. And for those of us in Christ Jesus, the message of salvation is urgent. It's urgent. Uh, The Bioethics Research Laboratory did some research here. They estimate that around 65 million people die each year in the world. That's 178,000 people a day. 7,425 people each hour and 120 people die every minute in our world. The sermon's gone on for 35 minutes. Some of you guys know that for sure. Uh, it's 35 minutes. I mean, that's, I'm not good in math, but that's a lot of people that have died in this world in 35 minutes. People who live without Christ die without Christ. And we have the only message in which they will find life namely in Jesus Christ. May we not be silent, for the good news of the gospel makes our feet beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner who has been silent when I should have spoken up. Have mercy on me for those times where I have taken days for granted, where I have spurned obedience to your word, where I have spurned time leading my family because I assume I'm going to have tomorrow. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. 
may we have a drive and desire in our hearts to love people well, but love them enough to share the gospel with them, to share the hope of Christ with them. If we truly believe that Christ is the only way to relationship with you, that he is the only one to mend our brokenness, make us new in you, to give us righteousness and right standing before you, Father. If we truly believe that Jesus is the only way, how can we we be silent? We don't have to be rude or jerks. But Father, may we be humble and obedient and courageous. Hey, courage, oh God, courage. Give us that today, oh God. Give us that today and use us, use us as the means to bring about salvation through the Spirit for men and women all around us. May Emmanuel Church be filled with new believers. New believers. It will be messy, but fill us up, O God, with people who have turned to Christ for salvation, who have been raised from death to life. For the glory of your name, not for the sake of building this church, building this brand, whatever, whatever, but for the sake of the glory of the name of Christ. Use us, O God. Have mercy on us when we fail. We believe your mercies are new every morning. We love you, Lord. Praise in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham. <laughs>